Patrick Coffin puts Milo Yiannopoulos on the spot concerning homosexuality, a scientist shows us why a naturalistic worldview is basically speculation, and Brett Weinstein debates Richard Dawkins. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. Sodomy is not just a sin of the flesh. Sodomy is actually worse psychically and physically than fornication. veritable cornucopia of topics to discuss, all from the intellectual dark web this week, by the way. Uh, but before we get to all that, let's talk about the Kenya Wall Project. Now, I know many of you have, have given, and I'm going to ask to give you more. It's kind of the reverse of uh, what Jesus teaches in St. Matthew's Gospel, that uh, to whom ha- have been given much, much more will be given something I'm paraphrasing. So basically, it's the reverse of that. Those of you who have given much, I'm asking you to give more. Um, really, it's, it's an 80-20 thing, and I get it. And uh, But those of you who I've talking to, uh, spoken to several of you who have given to the, to this project, and what I want to ask you to do is, is go subscribe to the donation. We have that button available on our website right now for $10 a month. I know I didn't ask anybody to sign up for this, so I'm, I am, I admit I'm reneging on that, but I'm hoping that some of you would be willing to give $10 a month to the Well Project until we complete it, or as long as you want. You, obviously, you can cancel the thing whenever you want, but uh, I'm hoping those of you that I've talked to, many of you are passionate about this, you want to see it happen, you've, you've asked me how much, and, and I've told you, and you've said, oh, that's more than I can cover in one shot, thinking maybe you could pay for the thing, um, but perhaps if if several of you or uh, enough of you who have already given got on the, the $10 a month and gave that for a, a, a certain length of time that, that we could get it covered, along with those of you we're still waiting on to give your $50 donations, that's still out there on the table as well. So, those of you who haven't given $50, do one of two things. Give your $50. Again, it's still a one-time thing. We can do this that way. We can raise the funds that way. Uh, uh, but I'm also wanting to introduce this monthly subscription. And lest we forget why we're doing this, let me talk to you about David, who writes to us as to why a well would be helpful at his school. David is eight years old. And his handwriting is unbelievable. It's really beautiful, almost picture perfect, and and it is. And David's uh, second language, at least, if not his third, is English. So this this is a bit broken. So I'm going to stumble through a little bit of it as I try to kind of piece together what David is trying to tell us. Just keep in mind, his first language is Swahili, and he is eight, and he's writing to us in English in perfect handwriting, but. Here's one thing he writes. He says a well could support us with watering our uh, vegetables and our plants. Um, Water can help us plant trees, which would also shade our vegetables and flowers. The well would also help the community. Remember I talked to to you a while back about how if uh, Keep Us Hope Academy was able to get this well, then we could basically distribute water to, to the community at cost. Uh, that this would be a really helpful thing j- just in the community itself. Not only would it help the school, it would help the community as well. And, and David uh, is wise to pick up on that. 
He also talks about the weather seasons there. He says the weather seasons uh, basically happen in the in the in a way that causes the temperature to rise, and to have a well in those seasons would be really important. He says uh, a well can help the community, like we talked about before, in in Kissimmee East, because there are many companies which spoil Kivos River, which is the only uh, river going through that community. So if you're not able to get water from the city and you're in the community, the only place to go is to that river. And in the and in these dry seasons that David is talking about, you can't go to the river because they're they're pre-industrial. They're still working on you know working out the kinks on on how to do how to industrialize as a nation, which is a good thing. This lifts people out of poverty. We've shown that here in in the West. Uh, but unfortunately, before you kind of sort these things out. Uh, you know, there's problems with drinking water, and, and that's kind of what they're going through right now. And, and David is is really uh, amazing to pick up on the fact that the community would benefit from this fresh water well because in the summer times, when when the Kibos River is going down and the and the the pollutants are concentrated, they can't drink that water, and it would be just another source of fresh water for them. As as David tells us here, really uh, really sharp for him to pick up on that. Um, the, the one thing that was really touching about this letter um, is this. He, he says, I, I wrote the Almighty God uh, that he should hear our prayer. Uh, I pray that somebody would drill a well for us here. Um, and that's, that's, that's really great. Uh, you know, uh, just really let that tug on your heartstrings a bit um, because it's supposed to. We're not, you know, Sally Struthers you know, putting, uh, kids in front of you on a late night television show, uh, where we're taking a cut of this, all of this is going to this well. And so I hope David really, really spoke to you. You know, you're giving, uh, to these children who are, who are very well and, and you can help David, you can help Catherine, you can help, uh, uh, the other children that we've talked about on the program. And so I hope you will very seriously consider giving, um, you know, obviously, I don't want you to give. You know, if it's out of your means, I get that. I, I know, I, you know, Jen and I have a lot of stuff tied up in giving and charity. And when people ask, we just we're just like, hey, we're we're spent. I, I get that. But maybe there's some creative ways you can come up with. Um, we've got the art still available. Uh, if you're looking to buy Christmas gifts, uh, I haven't got the art up on the website yet. We we want to do that. We're kind of still sorting out the kinks on that. But if you want some art for some Christmas gifts, uh, shoot me an email or a personal message on Facebook or something like that. I can hook you up with art. All, all of the art that we've purchased from Kenya is uh, all the proceeds from that are now going toward the well. So I, re- I really hope you'll think through that. Talk, talk it over with your family uh, because this is something uh, that, I, that I think is obviously very, very worthwhile and just could be completely life-changing there at Kibos Hope Academy. All right, so... Like we were talking about before, I listened to an interview with um, Milo Yiannopoulos. He's not making many appearances these days, but he, but he appeared on the Pactor Coffin Show, and I thought, oh, this ought to be uh, interesting. Might have some fur fly, sparks fly, this sort of thing. Uh, but it was actually a very civil conversation between the two of them. But Patrick Coffin doesn't pull any punches on, on this. He's he's very forth, forthright and assertive. Uh, with Yiannopoulos about his his homosexuality, and he asks him some very good questions and and frames it in the proper way. So so we're really going to walk through that and how 
coffin is is unashamed to to tell the truth to Yiannopoulos and and how Yiannopoulos responds and how we can maybe take some some cues from this as Christians to talk about this this very important subject. I think a lot of times people look at us and we think people look at Christians and because we oppose homosexual behavior that or homosexuality and we think it's sinful, it's not in God's plan, that that it's some sort of religious taboo. I think they think that about a lot of the things we believe, like abortion. They think that's just a Christian religious taboo. You know, having sex outside of marriage, that's just a Christian religious taboo. Well, what people don't understand is that God forbids things that are that are bad for you. And and so if we say that we love our neighbors, and we're going to get into this, if we say we love our neighbors, then we will not let them engage in things that are bad for them. That's plain and simple. We won't we just won't we won't tolerate that. So we've talked about this many times on the program, and I appreciate Coffin's approach to this because it's very similar to mine. Then we're going to go to uh, a, an inter- an interview on the on the uh, Rogan show, Joe Rogan show, um, the Joe Rogan experience with uh, William Van Heppel, and he's talking about evolution there, and that is going to be interesting because. We're going to see that really, when you think about it, uh, evolution proceeds from a worldview, not from evidence. And what we're going to see Von Heppel put forth is speculation at best. Then we're going to turn to the Rubin Report, talk about uh, his interview with Brett Weinstein. I've got the Weinstein brothers on here today, but uh, Brett Weinstein had a debate with Richard Dawkins or a discussion or I, don't, I haven't watched it yet. It, it just came out, so I'm going to have to go take a look at it. But uh, Ruben interviewed him about it and he's got some really interesting interesting things to say about the new atheism. So, that's the show lineup for today and uh, without further gilding the lily, let's get to it. Um, it's more Glasgow than um, Edinburgh. Scrubbing the effeminate, the weak, the dishonest, the disreputable, the duplicitous, and the malevolent from the church will make way for the restoration we really need. A restoration of manhood and strong Catholicism, excuse me, a strong Catholicism that recognizes the equal but different contributions of men and women and embodies the best of both of them. Manliness is what the church is lacking. It's a willingness to expose yourself to enemy fire, whether it comes from critics on social media, gunfire on the battlefield, or the horrors of the passion. Whether or not you wear a uniform, you can still be manly and courageous in defense of family, church, country, and civilization. That's a great paragraph. So the other 800-pound neon elephant is your marriage to a man in Hawaii. Isn't that a bit like a firefighter announcing his uh, commitment to arson? Do you see the cognitive dissonance yeah, yeah, that people have? Yeah, I have? do. And the way that, look, my position on this is, is evolving and complicated and probably contradictory. Um, I see that very much as a, I don't believe for a second that my marriage is valid in the eyes of God. Nor do I want the church to change her scripture or her practices to satisfy my egotistical desires. I'm also aware that there are things for which I'm going to have to atone and things for which I will be answerable later. Mm-hmm. But it is also my view that the best way for me to be a warrior is for me to have a bedrock of stability that I have not found elsewhere in my life um, in this way. Mm-hmm. 
I don't have any heterosexual urges, sexual urges. I'm not going to be with a woman. I'm not going to be married. And I'm also not going to be happy and able to fight and, and be out there doing good things if I am celibate. I could never make it as a priest. So this is my compromise position. This is the best that I can do right now. And my marriage I consider to be a, a, a piece of paper that indicates, you know, that I have, rather than being some promiscuous harlot, that I will at least try to get as close to, you know, a, a, a sanctified marriage union with a woman that I possibly can. Luckily, we don't have to address the gay adoption question, which I... I so Coffin asks the tough questions here, and that's that's good. That's really, you know, w- what we're looking for uh, in an interview like this. It's these these interviews are difficult. I've done them with with some hostile, uh, shall we say, hostile witnesses. Kyle J. Howard is, is a perfect example of that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm hostile toward him. That's don't don't get me wrong. Don't misread me there. We're we're very friendly, but we disagree, and. When you interview somebody who's a quote hostile witness who you disagree with, it's it's in, it's intimidating to try to ask the tough questions. I I try to do it and sometimes I don't always succeed as best as I would like to. Uh, but Coffin I think is, is zeroing right in as he talks about you know Yiannopoulos talking making these these bold statements about how men should be and how the church should be and how this all should work out. But yet he is involved in active homosexual behavior. And Yiannopoulos' response is to say that, well, I can't do what I'm doing to fight against the this tide of whatever, uh, be it anti-Western, anti-Christian sentiment, unless, I, if I'm celibate. He just resigns himself to that to say that I can't be celibate and do this. I've got I've got to be able to have sex in order to do this fight, which really is a non sequitur. It, it doesn't make sense. But but I think I know where it comes from. It, it really comes from this cultural zeitgeist that says I can't make it if I don't have sex. I mean when I was a teenager we used to, you know, use this as a coercion tactic with girls to say that, hey, if we don't have sex, this can do us physical harm. And that's just not true. You literally can go your entire life without having sex and live. It is most possible. And so the notion, I mean, as strong as Yiannopoulos is, as strong-willed, as strong as strong in mind, he seems like a generally disciplined individual to say that um, this is an area where he can't say, okay, I'm, I'm going to discipline myself here and be celibate. And no matter what the culture tells me, I mean, that's, this is the thing that's just completely out of sorts to me with him on this on this topic, is he is so countercultural in so many other ways. Why isn't he countercultural on, on this to say that, hey, the, the culture tells us that we can't make it if we don't have sex. Uh, and so, you know what, I'm just going to sh- show the world that you can. That's, that seems like that would be right up his alley. But yet, he's making this proclamation that he can't do what he's doing professionally unless he's got this stable foundation where he can have sex the way he wants to have sex. Doesn't quite make sense. And Coffin really draws that out here. Um, I don't think I would ever be comfortable with because he already has a son. It's as close as I can get to what to what a good life looks like, um, while not 
ruining myself as a as a soldier for Christ, if you like. Um, and I'm aware that it's not good enough for a lot of people, and I know that. But I consider the marriage to be a symbol of deep and abiding fraternal love with that person, but also uh, also a practical consideration, you know, so that I have somebody who can serve the functions of a wife um, in medical and legal and financial contexts. So what I don't consider it in any way is, if you like, I think of it as a, as a, as a civil partnership. And that's precisely the, that's precisely what I would have got if we'd been in Britain. Right. So uh, it's, it's encouraging to see that Yiannopoulos at least recognizes a problem here. This is not the design. This is not the ideal. He, he recognizes that, in fact, he's going against what should be done. Uh, but yet he, he feels like that being involved in a homosexual relationship that he calls marriage is somehow cl- somehow better than abs- abstaining, being celibate. He's not making sense here. This this whole thing makes very little sense in light of who Eunopolis is. He is countercultural. The the cultural, like we said, the culture is going to tell you you can't survive without having sex. He's bought into that, and, and that's kind of maybe if I was gonna, if I was in, if I were in Coffin's shoes, where I would drill down a bit more. And but unfortunately, Coffin doesn't. But he he follows up and asks uh, another really pretty tough question as Oprah would put it, my best life. Um, and, and, and answering to one person eventually and every day, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and, and on that account, I don't think I'm doing too badly. Although I know there's a hell of a lot I have to answer for, um, and will will be judged according to, but, well, uh, take a number Milo. Right. Sure. But, but as, as you mentioned, Evelyn Wall, you know, we're in this church cause we know we're sinners. If we thought we were good people, we'd be, we'd be Protestants. And, and imagine how worse we'd be if we weren't Catholics. Yes. And another Evelyn Wall. Yeah. Yes. You rightly, now that's a really interesting exchange there. Um, if we if we didn't think we were sinners, we'd be Protestants. Um, w- what they're talking about is straight up Lutheranism. The the reason I'm a Lutheran is because I know I'm a sinner in need of grace. I'm in, in fact, this is the first thing we do in, in the in the liturgy at our church is we confess our sins, confess human fra- uh, frailty. Uh, and this is was the big crux of the matter at the Reformation, where Martin Luther says, "Hey, we're, we're sinners, and we're saved by grace. We need the reason we're in the church is because we, it's because we need God's grace." Not quite sure where they're getting this, but it is encouraging to recognize that Yiannopoulos and Coffin both recognize that the reason they're in the church is because they need God's grace. That's 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 a good thing, um, and and incidentally, just. On a side note, for any Catholic listeners that I might have out there, um, the Reformation did help reform the Catholic Church. It did, absolutely did. There's, there could be, there's no question about that. Um, and I think most honest people w- will admit that. And, and I think this is a pretty good sign right here, where you've got two Catholics talking about how, hey, I'm a Catholic because I need grace. Uh, when that's pretty much a, you know, this, you know, the, the notion of grace alone is. Uh, it's a Lutheran thing, and they're, they're they're calling on grace, and then they're saying that that Protestants, you know, if we, you know, the reason they're Catholics is because they need grace. Otherwise, they would be pro- Protestants, because evidently, in their view, uh, the Protestants don't need grace. Now, there is something to be said <laughs> for the North American evangelical pop evangelical landscape, which is all law, 
uh, people walking around acting as if, you know, they don't need uh, the Lord's uh, saving grace. And we're going to get to a man here probably next week who acts that way. Uh, you know, who's, who's a uh, who's a religious fundamental, religious quote unquote Christian fundamentalist. Nothing Christian about him at all. But uh, a guy that that acts like he doesn't need God's grace, he's got his act completely together. So I get that. I mean, I know the 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 popular um, landscape of of evangelicalism in, in North America is, hey, we've got our act together and we don't really need any grace. Uh, so I get I, I get that. And I would probably, if you were to put a gun to my head and say. Um, go be an, go be a pop evangelical or go be a Catholic. I'd go be a Catholic for sure, especially because um, they have baptism and the Lord's body and blood. But <laughs> anyway, I just I just that was striking uh, for them to talk about how the reason they're in the Catholic Church is because um, they know they're sinners and they need God's grace. Pretty interesting stuff. They point out that uh, in the Church's taxonomy of of sins, sins of of pride are higher on the severity scale than sins of the flesh. Now, this sins is not, of the flesh are very yeah. low down for a reason. But you know? there's a but, though. There's a, there's a caveat, and that is that, that sodomy is not just a sin of the flesh. Sodomy is actually worse psychically and physically than fornication. If you're, if you're uh, lusting after a college chick or having sex as a high schooler or you're, you're sleeping with a secretary and you're married, that's not against nature. Um, can you envision a life of chastity even though you have this partnership with John? Because right you're, you're, one, you're one confession away from yeah. Lord Jesus Christ in, in the Eucharist. I know you know that. Right now, no. But if, if my relationship with him were ever to come to an end, I think I would enroll at a seminary immediately. This is a pretty gutsy thing for Coffin to, to point out. That, that sodomy, acts of homosexuality, are actually worse than marriage. Now, why do we say that? Because of religious taboo? No. We say that because psychologically, physiologically, they're more damaging. I'm not going to go into graphic detail about this, but think about the physiological part of it. Man to woman. What kind of physiological damage is going to be done there? Man to man, what kind of physiological damage is going to be done there? Woman to woman, what kind of physiological damage is going to be done there. In addition to that, there is, the research is conclusive on this, that psychologically, these types of relationships are quite harmful. Now, uh, there's a lot of mitigating factors in there, but the coffin is, is precisely right here, and he's, he's absolutely correct to point this out and, and to bring it to, to Yiannopoulos' attention. And that harkens back to how he opened the podcast to say that these things aren't just religious taboos. We don't preach against these things just because we feel like hating on somebody. That's not the point. The point is, is that if we say we love you and you are engaging in behaviors behaviors that are both psychologically and physiologically damaging to you, if they are harmful to your soul, then we... <laughs> We have to say something about that. It, I mean, think about somebody that you love. If, you, if you're not tracking with this, that that, that you, you would not allow them to do things. You wouldn't, you wouldn't let them cut themselves. But think about what sodomy does to the human body. And if you need to look it up, go look it up. It's not good. And so for us to stand by and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we... 
no, that's, yeah, you know, that's kind of kinky and perverted, you know, and that's okay to, you know, to not only be called by our culture to say that, but to actually celebrate harm to an individual, that's not love. That's not the biblical definition of love. And Coffin is spot on to bring that out here. Because I, 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 that the answer, the answer is no, and it's not going to be good enough for some people. But um, I, th- I think he's. This is a. I was headed in a direction, perhaps, of chastity, and uh, anyway, and I was mm-hmm. think, thinking about the priesthood in, in a you know for for a number of years. Not seriously, I don't think that ever happened. But um, this it actually, it actually makes sense, Milo. This person has opened up a part of me that makes me a better Christian, and it's a very complicated thing to try to wrap your head around when you know that there are these ironclad watertight prescriptions on the one hand and the evidence of your soul and your senses on the other. And um, I don't mind admitting I have no answer to that yet. All right, so here's the postmodern epistemology. We've talked about this many times at work at its finest, and I think this is evidenced in the sexual revolution um, although the credit should be given to Yiannopoulos for recognizing that he's got a major dose of cognitive dissonance going on here. And that's that's what was brilliant about Coffin's interview with him, in my opinion, is that he, he really just brought Yiannopoulos to, to admit that. But you just heard him say that what's ruling him at this point in time are these are not these ironclad norms but his uh, his soul and his senses. That's what's ruling him. His emotion has taken over his reason, and both of those are elevated above Holy Scripture. And that's the postmodern epistemology. Um, and, 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 and that's the foundation that Yiannopoulos uh, is proceeding from here in order to somehow try to justify where he's at in life right now. Okay, so anyway, it was really interesting, really intense interview. Um, I mean, at least Yiannopoulos admits uh, that he that this is messed up. And, and perhaps uh, this conversation with Coffin will bring him to repentance. Okay, let's move on to uh, the Joe Rogan interview with William Von Heppel. The social leap. Yes. What's the social leap? I'll tell you all about it. Please do. Okay, so... Um, the story that I want to tell is basically how we got here, how we became human. And so that story begins about six or seven million years ago when our ancestors left the rainforest. And so the question is, why would they leave and how would they survive once they left? And, and that's what the social leap is. So it takes a second to get it all out there, okay? Yeah. All right. So here's the story. So if you look back about seven million years... Our ancestors and chimps, we had a common ancestor at about that point in time, six or seven million years ago. And that common ancestor, we don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was, from all we can tell, it was awfully close to today's chimps. And so there, if you look at chimps today, you can get a pretty good sense of what life was like then. And chimps today are really interesting. They're basically at the top of the food chain in the rainforest. They're super fast up in the trees, super athletic, and... They, because they travel in groups, even amazing tree climbers like leopards won't try to attack them in trees. It's just they, it's, they're too dangerous too fast. But if you look at a chimp on the ground, it can't even lock its knees. It's this kind of cute little stumbling along thing. And then the question is, why would an animal that runs a show in the canopy leave the rainforest for the savanna? And then how would it survive once it did that? And, and that's, that's the story of this book and then how that manifests itself to where we are today. So 
really my goal. I'm a psychologist. I want to understand why we are the way we are. And so in trying to figure that out, I said, well, let's take a look back all the way to our common ancestors and see some of the key events and how they might have had an influence on how we are today. So the first question is, why would we leave the trees, right? Here we are. We're dominant position. We're, we're food on the ground. Why would we ever take that risk? And the basic story there is the Great African Rift Valley. I'm not sure if you've you're familiar with it at all, but basically it runs down from um, up at the Red Sea down to the coast of Mozambique. And you can think of it like a geographic zipper. You know, all the world sits on these tectonic plates, and sometimes they crash into each other, like uh, how India is smashing into Asia and creates the Himalayas. Sometimes they literally tear apart, and Africa's tearing apart at the Great African Rift Valley. So that plate that has Somalia and Ethiopia, Tanzania, Kenya, that's moving off to the lower right. The rest of Africa's moving off to the upper left. And I got no, no idea why. It's been going on for quite a while. But one of the consequences of that is that the East Africa is starting to rise up slowly bit by bit. And when it rises up, the rainforests dry out. And so basically what you have is a situation where our ancestors were on the east side of that rift valley. And it started to dry out. And now they're in a situation where they've got this great lifestyle. They're a dominant position. But now they're, pushed, they're forced out onto the ground increasingly more and more because there's more and more ground and less and less rainforest. And so how do they survive that? What do they do in order to make that work? And this is a what, – what period of time is this? How many millions of years ago? Six or seven. Six or seven. Does this coincide with the when, – when was the jump – of the human brain size where it doubled. Oh, we'll get to that. So okay, it, it's a super interesting question about mm. why that happened as well. So basically, if you track us across the next three million years, how did our ancestors survive when they're basically chimpanzees on the open savanna? And you can get a hint of how they did it because there's one chimpanzee group that does live on the savanna in Senegal, and they, um, they show some differences between themselves and other chimps. They travel in slightly larger groups. They share more nicely with each other, which is interesting. That's kind of a human trait as well. And uh, they also avoid open space. Like they're just kind of trying to stay near the trees as much as possible. And so, and if you look at other apes, they're not apes, but other primates that are on the savanna, like savanna baboons, they're only monkeys. So they're not as sharp as chimpanzees are, but they have a similar strategy, large groups to try to protect themselves and lots of eyes to look out for predators. And they do fine on the savanna. And so what I suspect happened is for the first few million years, basically what you've got is this chimp-like animal that's kind of skirting the edges of the savanna, nowhere near the top dominant position they used to be, and just kind of noodling around. And that takes, I suspect that takes us for about the first three, three and a half million years. And if you look at who we are then, we're Australopithecus afarensis. So it's if you looked at one of them, you'd think it belongs in a zoo. It looks almost like a chimpanzee. And so a chimp brain in answer to the first part of your question, is about 380 grams. And Australopithecus brain is about 450 grams. So 3 million years of evolution, and all we've got for it is 70 grams. So why do we get so smart? Why do we take off in the next few million years? And what is it that Australopithecus did that, that helped us survive, and, and why do I call that the social leap? That's mm. all kind of tied together. And the basic story is that by this point, Australopithecus has become bipedal. And we can talk about how that happened if you'd like. And so because they're bipedal, their waist is now stretched out. Their, um, their musculature, like if you look at chimpanzee pecs, they aim upward because, of course, chimps climb in all the time. Um, Australopithecus is more lateral like we are. We're basically completely lateral because things are side to side as far as we're concerned. It's harder to climb a tree, but it's a whole lot easier to do a lot of other things. And um, we have much more limber shoulder 
we have much more limber wrist, all that sort of thing. And a lot of that was in place by Australopithecus. So once they became bipedal, they gained a lot of these qualities. And then the question is, why do those qualities matter? Well, the, if you watch a chimpanzee throw, it's terrible at it. Even though they're stronger than you and I are, pound for pound, by a sizable margin, when they throw, they're inept, they can't aim very well, and they typically use two hands because they're not lined up well to throw. If you watch a really good thrower, like you know, a gridiron, a, a football player, a baseball player, or hunter-gatherer throw, you know, it's a full-body motion. You step forward with the other leg. There's this rotation. In the very last minute, you bring your wrist through. Well, what that does is it creates an enormous amount of elastic energy across your muscles, tendons, and ligaments. And the end of that throw for a human is like the snapping of a rubber band. So chimps can't do that. They're not lined up properly. But Australopithecus got to the point where they could probably do that pretty well. And so now, and that's purely a byproduct of bipedalism because it stretched out their whole body and they don't, they're not climbing as much anymore so their musculature is more lateral, which would have been helped them for throwing. So now you get to a point where they have access to the single most important military invention in history, which is the capacity to kill at a distance. So if you and I are running around the savannah and a lion attacks us and we got 50 of our best friends, we could kill it with our bare hands, but a lot of us are going to die in the process. Right? Because you think fifty of us could kill. I, a lion? Let's make it a hundred. You, really you think even a hundred of us could kill a lion? <laughs> it would, you know, with a bunch of knives and shit. If I was a shit. lion, I'd be super confident. Yeah, you, uh, you wouldn't worry. Other people, you wouldn't worry. All right. So first of all, I gotta admit this whole notion is way more interesting than God created us the way we are. That's kind of boring. It really is. I mean, this his this story that he said, and you notice he used that word story. So the story is. This is how things go. Um, the notion that chimpanzees became humans is speculation. And any honest scientist would tell you this. We don't have any hard data. We haven't found the missing link, to put it in layman's terms. I mean, it, that's that's the question I wish Rogan would ask him. But, but wait a second. We haven't found any skeletal evidence for this. We're proceeding from the idea that, that evolution uh, it, it absolutely is, is the way things developed. Um, and so if you start with that presupposition, then th- this is really probably pretty good. It's probably some of the best um, speculation you could come up with. Um, tectonic plates forced a shift in... You know, in the rainforest, ancient chips were forced forced to go to the ground, um, and you know we became bipedal. Uh, you know, we we were we were more lateral creatures, so we were able to throw more limber from the shoulder. All this sort of thing. Again, this is all speculation. How did we? So, so again, it, it all boils down to what presupposition you start from, and this is where the presuppositionalist apologists have it right. Jason Lyle and those guys, they're they're spot on. Because no matter what you throw at these guys, their presuppositions are just going to reject it out of hand. Because their presupposition is is that all there is is material. They're naturalist, materialist. And from that presupposition, they have to try to explain everything. There's no there's no God, there's no creator, there's no intel not even an intelligent designer. That maybe put all of this in motion. All there is is material, chance, 
and time. And so given given that presupposition, this is a pretty compelling story. But again, it's still, at the end of the day, a story. There's not one shred of hard evidence of cross-species evolution. Now, if you want to talk about species adaptation, that goes on all the time. We see that all the time. We see that in, in human history. Talk about species, you know, uh, species adapting to their environments um, and these sorts of things. We see this all the time within species, but never do we see a rat um, adapt to the point where they need to fly so they become a bird. We don't see this in, in the skeletal record. We don't see a, a chimpanzee in the skeletal skeletal record adapt to become a bipedal, lateral human. We just don't have... The missing link is still missing. Now, some might say that we have it. Well, what about Lucy? Uh, well, that's a whole other story. Lucy's highly questionable. Um, and, and even within that, takes a lot of speculation. So we don't see any cross species. We see we see adaptation, but we don't see it uh, cr- uh, cross species. I guess I should say. So we don't we don't have any evidence that chimpanzees became men. This is this is based on a presupposition that uh, material and time created human beings by random chance. That's the presupposition. Now. The reason this is interesting is because I think this puts you in a philosophical quandary in a number of ways. Not the least of which is that if you're going to hold to a materialist approach to the earth, the universe, life, uh, humanity, you've got to be able to first demonstrate that there is no God. Not that you just don't need, you don't need, I don't need a God for this, but in fact, there is no God. In order to demonstrate that, that that intelligent design is incorrect in any way, shape, manner, or form, you've got to prove conclusively that there is no God. And so, um, it, it, you know, and because you can't just say, well, we're just going to posit that there is no God. We're just going to say, well, we we don't we don't need a god for this. Well, you you can say you don't need a god, but what you've got to demonstrate that is that there is no god, and that's the problem. Any honest atheist will tell you, well, I can't prove there's not a god, so therefore, really, <laughs> they're agnostic because they really don't know. Uh, the new atheists include, and we're going to get to to Dawkins and and Weinstein in a second. But but in order to hold an, an evolutionary creation um, without any intelligent even if you're a deist and you're saying well yes there was a god who set all this up and it, and it flowered into this thing it was kind of like the, the watchmaker who made the watch wound it up and let it go um, even, you know even there you are positing intelligent design if you're going to refuse to allow for an intelligent design, then you've got to demonstrate logically, reasonably, evidentially the notion that there is no 
intelligent designer, i.e. God. You've got to prove there's no God. That's really where you've got to come from. And, and it's something that I've not heard put to somebody like uh, Von Eppel here. Von Eppel here. Uh, you know, Weinstein. Anybody. Uh, Jordan Peterson. I mean, there, there's, there's a number of, of flaws with this. And, and, and the problem with it is, is when you take a completely materialistic approach then you exclude other disciplines that are germane to to uh, explanation that that help in in providing explanatory details such as philosophy theology so my question is is why is it that science is elevated above everything this is this goes back to the the notions of epistemology, where the modern notion of epistemology elevates reason, science above all things. Why is that? What, and and why doesn't it incorporate things like theology and philosophy? The whole notion of having a god that's outside of ourselves, and we're going to talk about that in a little while. This ties nicely into. What Weinstein's getting ready to interview uh, Dave Rubin about, but it, but anyway, it's interesting that this is completely based on speculation, it, and and it's founded on a presupposition that the universe was was created randomly, and that all there is is material, and that material over time converged and developed into what we know as human beings right now. Um, that and, and again, von Eppel is very clever in bringing forth these uh, these speculations. Because if all you have is material and time, uh, these are the kind of speculations you're going to come up with. Just plain and simple. But again, keep in mind, they are speculations. And keep in mind that for Von Eppel to actually prove that his presuppositions are valid, he's got to prove that there's no God. Let's move on. First of all, I'm a believer in that, and it was one of the most important tools that I used to use in the classroom, you know, figuring out what people heard, how it landed, what they don't yet have. So anyway, I'm, I'm very cognizant of what people are hearing, and I was listening carefully to, to the audience. And, um, you know, the thing was set in motion, you know, as another New Atheist event. And so in some sense, I was... I was battling uphill because mm-hmm. my basic point was new atheism is is a cul-de-sac. It's it's a problem in and of itself. Um, it, it, it's a problem because at the end at the end of it there isn't enough. Is that like the most simplistic way that I could present it? No, I mean, let me just put it in stark terms. Yeah, okay. Atheism is defensible, but new atheism is wrong. And new atheism is wrong because it portrays religious belief as a defect of mind rather than an adaptation, a mm-hmm. non-literal adaptation. And so in a room full of people who, you know, Dawkins is a very famous person. Yeah. People presumably showed up to hear yeah. uh, Dawkins. Almost all of those people have at least deep sympathies with the ideas of new atheism. And so somebody... Uh, setting out to say, actually, new atheism is an incorrect instantiation of atheism because it is effectively ideological. 
and it accuses people who have religious faith of being mentally defective. And in fact, Dawkins and I tangled over this. You know, I that is exactly right. That new atheism is ideological. And again, I told this story a million times. I was a Claremont. Think the move was, hey, we're all atheists. We become atheists. Read God Delusion and get started on becoming an atheist. Read God Delusion, I'm like, uh, this is another form of fundamentalism. It's ideological. So that that's where uh, Weinstein is, is, is exactly right. Here's where he's wrong. Every worldview, that is every person, is ideological. You don't come to the game with a blank, blank slate and no presuppositions. You come to the table with your ideas. Now, here's where I found Christian faith, especially as articulated uh, by, by historic Orthodox Lutheran faith, is that it exposes and challenges presuppositions. At least it's supposed to. It doesn't always. Uh, but, but generally speaking, what I found is that um, it, the Christian faith taken seriously will challenge your presuppositions, will challenge your worldview, will challenge your ideologies. Uh, and what what it brings you to is this notion of who will have ultimate authority. Now, we just dealt with Von Eppel and his materialist approach to, uh, to the world, his materialist worldview. And in that worldview, it essentially boils down to whoever has the best ideas will have the authority. Now, recall Lord Acton, who I think was spot on when he said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you have the best ideas and you have the most authority, you have the most power, that power will corrupt and it becomes authoritarian. That's that's the materialistic approach. And that's that's when I was thinking through these things, I was like, okay, um, is Dawkins going to be my God? Is he going to be the authority to which I appeal for my worldview. And I was like, no way. There's no way. Reading this book, uh uh-uh. Just doesn't wash. The theistic approach, however, gives us a genuine, objective opinion on matters. It's because if God has an opinion, it doesn't mean it's wrong. So we have the extra nos, the outside of ourselves, ultimate authority. It's something I've talked, I've talked about in the past. Um, we cannot have genuine objectivity otherwise. We need God's voice. We can argue over what God's voice means. All of human history has done this. I mean, this is what's been great about Western civilization we, is that we've had a holy scripture and we've debated it for millennia. And we should continue to debate it. We should try to figure out what he means. But, and this is one area where I like Jordan Peterson, where he says that, yes, of course, you know, anything you come across can have an infinite number of meanings, but there is only one meaning that will give you the best result. There's only one meaning that will allow you to survive. If you're standing on a cliff, the only interpretation of that situation is that you shouldn't jump. Because if you interpret it as, um, I can jump or hang off or whatever, you're going to get hurt. You might die. There's only one interpretation. And so therefore, if we have God's voice, there's one interpretation 
that's going to give us the best results. And trying to figure out what that is 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 the project. And we can debate about that, but but we but what we can't debate about is that we we don't have an outside objective voice coming in saying this is what is reality. Now, um, even it uh, with with Weinstein, and well, before before uh, before I get to that, let, let, let me uh, let him go on here just a bit. Said, look, you're you've called religion a mind virus. Mm-hmm. That's an incorrect interpretation. And at first, he said, well, I don't really mean anything deep by virus. He said, it's you know, you could argue that every gene in the genome is like a virus, right? And I said, well, but what people hear when you say that is that that they're mentally ill for believing this. And he said, mm-hmm. well, they are mentally ill, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, you could see the division in his own thinking. Right, because at that point, he's then saying both things at the same time. He's saying both things. And yeah. I, you know, I understand his position about you could interpret each gene as independent. Sure. You know, I could defend that position too. But if in order for there to be an honorable atheism, we have to own up to what all that religious belief was about. And then, I mean, and this is the place that I get into um, an easier pickle, but a pickle with Peterson as well, is the question of if we acknowledge that religious belief is adaptive, then all of the things that are true of adaptive phenomena kick in. And the most important one is that adaptive phenomena are not timeless. They are adaptive relative to a historical time and place, and it may be a very long-standing time and place, but the point is there is nothing. It is purely magical thinking to imagine that religious traditions that are thousands of years old are the core of the toolkit for moving forward. Our, Our existence in 2018 is so novel that if there's one thing we can be sure of, it's that our adaptive nature is a poor match for it. So then can anything be truly timeless? Is, is that the right question? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but the way you do it is this. The longer standing some truth of some kind is, the closer it gets to being timeless. Mm-hmm. In other words, if we look at things that are um, very evolutionarily long standing, well, those things have persisted through environments that were very different from each other. So what that means is that thread still functions irrespective, to an extent, of the context. The longer it lasts, the more likely it is to speak to truths that continue to be relevant. But Okay, so here I think Weinstein is speaking a little bit, as he accused Dawkins of speaking out both sides of his mouth. Uh, even Weinstein's version of atheism, if he's going to posit an atheist, and that's what it sounds like he's, he's doing here, um, something else is going to become God. We, we, we can't get from the is to the ought. I still have not heard an adequate explanation of that 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 works. And if, if religion is is adaptive, it's a, if it's a re, an evolutionary adaptation, let's just put that in there for the sake of argument. It's an, it's an adaptation we still need. And it's an adaptation that requires sincere belief. And here's where I depart with Peterson. Just acting as if God exists doesn't cut it. Because ultimately you know God doesn't exist. And you can assert your own authority. That's where the authoritarianism is going to be smuggled in. 
So we talk, and then um, Ruben asks a great question here. Is there anything that's timeless? And here's where I would walk through at least the second table of the Ten Commandments with Weinstein to say that is it, is it still true after all these tens of thousands of years since we've been given the Decalogue that we should honor our authorities, beginning with our mother and father? Do you think the world would be a better place if people honored their mother and father and honored their employers, etc.? Or do you think the world would be a better place if, as a rule, I'm not talking about the exception, I'm talking about the rule that we despised parents and authority. And I'd walk. Do you think the world would be a better place um, if there were more murders? Do you think the world would be a better place if there was more adultery, more stealing, these sorts of things? Right? You walk him. You, you walk him through the Ten Commandments, and, and and I would remind him, perhaps, you know, maybe even with the Sixth Commandment, to say that remember when you and your wife Heather Hying were on Joe Rogan's show and you talked about how you know the, the most fulfilling sexual encounters we have are with lifelong monogamous partners uh, between men and women that produce children. <laughs> they really made that case fairly clear. So it's, it's strange that I, I'm not sure what he's talking about when he when he says that the, you know religious tradition. I mean, there are some traditions that pass away. I mean, traditions can can kind of come and go. I, I I love tradition personally. I you know for me when I go to church, you know I want to see the oldest that's available. <laughs> um, but but when we're talking about values and morality, there's got to be some timeless. Um, aspects to this and I and I think that's what, what and I think that's what uh Ruben is really trying trying to get at here is is there anything that's timeless that's transcendent uh you know morally and, and I think that's an important question so that that's the key in, in, in even in Weinstein's argument I appreciate the fact that he's pointed out that new atheism is is ideological it's it's a new religion that's all it is and it behaves that way however um my challenge to him to say well if we're going to put forth atheism then what we've got to say is is, is, is a, that it's purely magical thinking that's that's the words he used to say that religious tradition now would that's where i'd bring in the ten commandments okay now when you talk about religious tradition let's Let's talk about Exodus 20, because this is some long-standing religious tradition, right? Um, is this religious tradition, or is this, you know, do we have some timeless things going on here? And he kind of goes on to say that we, we live in such a novel culture. Well, we live in a novel culture because we've forgotten what's timeless and what brought us here in my estimation and and I'm and again I'm not even sure quite what he means by that notion so so at any rate again here a couple things are going on you've you've got someone proceeding from a presupposition that we live in a purely materialistic uh, we, 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 that we're the products of a purely materialistic um, set of random chance. And so when you 
when you when you look at it that way, what what results? And I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that Weinstein uh, is is putting forth the notion that religion is an adaptive thing. That, that this is part of this is really part of human evolution. That we needed this, but that um, it, it can pass away and we can move on to new things. Okay, um, perhaps, perhaps we can move on to new understandings. We can look at God's word to us, that extra nos voice that tells us what is reality and what's not, and and try to understand it in a different way given our experiences. Maybe we misunderstood something. We can we can go back and revisit these things, but the notion that there's not some timeless truth here. And and I really appreciate that the Dave Rubin brought this out. Isn't there some timeless truth? And and, and Weinstein kind of capitulates to this to say that yeah, there might be some timeless truth. Uh, and if so, um, is that found uh, in religious practice? That's where I would take him to the Ten Commandments. At any rate, uh, pretty interesting stuff this week. A lot of God talk on the IDW. Um, and, you know, very interest, interestingly so. At any rate, uh, please give to the Kenyon Wall Project. Uh, $50, one-time gift, and sign up for the uh, subscription for $10 a month to give to the Kenyon Well Project. Um, listen to us on KNNA The Cross, and we'll pick this up uh, next week where we're going to see you know, an example of maybe why Christians aren't such a popular breed these days. All right. Take care. See you next week. Thank you.